Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Looking at the equity markets, we are at or near all-time highs, but there's definitely some concern building in this marketplace that maybe it is overheated. You can look no further maybe than some of the blow-ups we've seen just recently, whether it's the Arcagos from last week, Melvin Capital and all the Reddit stocks, and, and some others here to help us put it all in perspective. We welcome Ben Hunt. He's co-founder and chief investment officer of Second Foundation Partners. He's, he's also the creator and author for Epsilon Theory newsletter and website based in Reading, Connecticut. So, Ben, as, as you take a look at, you know, whether it's Greensill or Archegos or Melvin Capital, what do you see when you see some of those kind of blow-ups in the market? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on to talk about this, Paul. I, I appreciate that. You know, you know, I... <laughs> Obviously, all three of these, right? So Melvin Capital, as you mentioned, that's that's Gabe Plotkin's hedge fund. It was at the epicenter of the the, the GameStop, Robin Hood uh, debacle, right? Uh, you've got Greensill Capital with supposedly, you know, su- supply chain uh, financing, uh, and then most recently you've got uh, Archegos uh, and and whatever that was, right? And certainly these are all a little different. I mean, I guess it was, I forget who it was, was it Tolstoy. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Right? <laughs> so, so you know, there, there are clearly differences in the situation of all three of these, but there's also a really important similarity. And that similarity, I think, is that all three of these institutions were levered to the hilt, funded by other financial institutions, and I and I, I I think that sort of leverage is at the heart of the demise, or at least in the case of of Melvin, the misfortune that that, that all three of them have had. Ben, correct me if I'm wrong and if I'm stepping out of line, but. It is very easy in times like these to blame the Fed. They've pumped up this market with unlimited QE, unlimited stimulus. Everyone is FOMO. We all have confetti emojis when we make trades. How much of this is a problem because money is too easy? Well, look, Taylor, I mean, this is always the issue, right? I mean, this is the punch bowl. And and what happens when you've got... uh, an unlimited punch bowl with spiked with 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 pure grade alcohol. Well, you know, people get drunk, and and, and I think that's what we have being represented in markets today. But but look, it's it's yes, you're you're so right. It's easy to blame the Fed, and frankly, I do think that a, a zero interest rate policy for so long has to have these these sort of consequences that we're seeing today. But but I think it also goes beyond the Fed. Taylor, honestly, I, I think that one of the big reasons that, that we are in this situation is that the lenders, the people who are extending the leverage that's being gobbled up by the Bill Wongs of the world or the, the Gay Plotkins of the world, you know, it means something when we talk about too big to fail. It means something when we talk about these systemically you know, important financial institutions. They can extend this leverage. They can take these losses without, frankly, taking the consequences of bad risk management and bad decision-making. All right. So 
the the bull market Ben for this market is pretty clear for most investors and and then you know in whether it's the Fed with low low interest rates fiscal stimulus mm-hmm. the reopening trade we, we we all know the bull case here where is the risk in that bull case from your perspective it seems it's pretty clear to a lot of investors but where do you see the risk in that bull call well look the the, the risk is is where the risk always is right which is the the can the party go on forever? The risk is always what happens, as, as we're seeing some examples today, of the enormous losses that are made possible by the use of leverage. Uh, you know, what we're experiencing today, I think, is a, a, a reversal in a number of the, I'll call them correlations, but, but, but really what they are are these gigantic economic barges that have been sailing in the same direction for like 30 or 40 years. I'm talking about inflation expectations, moving from expectations of deflation to inflation. You're seeing that being reflected in interest rates. I'm talking about the reversal in globalization, this massive force for, well, deflation, but also for these, uh, the, the supply chain, supply finance, trade finance. It's been a one way market in both inflation expectations and globalization for 30 or 40 years. And I think we're clearly seeing signs that those one-way bets are shifting. So that's why I think that, that or that's what I think could cause one to, to, to pay the piper with the enormous amount of leverage that's being extended to so many of these uh, investment firms. How much of this, too, comes down to the need for transparency? I just watched that great, I think it was a PBS mm-hmm. documentary about Brooksley Born and long-term capital yeah. management. And I'm at Taylor Riggs Capital Management, and I know what I've <laughs> lent you. And Paul Sweeney at his capital management knows what he's lent you. But he and I have no idea what we have combined collectively lent you. Yep. And therein lies the problem. Well, I'll say that that's a problem in two respects. One, it's a problem that our regulators are, are, are not seemingly able uh, to provide or, or, or capture that, that sort of, uh, of transparency, as you're saying, that sort of visibility so that we can know what risks exist in the market. Uh, but, but I'll also say it gets back to this, this notion of being too big to fail. I, you, know, you know, you're never going to stop investment banks or prime brokers from taking risks. We wouldn't, want to, we wouldn't want to stop that, right? But I think it's very different. We live in a world of today where I don't know that we can have a Bear Stearns moment, right? I, I don't know that it's possible for a prime broker today to, you know, to, to extend so much leverage that, that they get taken out in the street and shot. Right. Uh, and we and, hope and not. it's a lot. Yeah, right, right. Oh, absolutely, we hope not. But what I would say is that if, if that ultimate um, penalty doesn't exist, mm. then I, I think that takes away kind of the motivation of the banks to say, hey, let me, let me do a little more digging here, and let me, let me have a conversation with other banks about how much leverage they're extending to, to this guy or that guy. Right. I, I think it comes back to that too-big-to-fail notion. All right, Ben. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts here on these markets. Ben Hunt, co-founder and chief investment officer of Second Foundation Partners. Well, I saw recent news that Goldman Sachs called quits 
on a dollar short. The currency team closed its recommended short greenback position against a basket of G10 commodity currencies, including the Aussie and Kiwi, in a note titled Tactical Retreat. Let's get some color on those currency markets. We do that with Dr. Wynn Thin, Global Head Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, Wynn, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of that uh, Goldman call there on the dollar? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's always, it's always a pleasure to, to be on here. Um, you know, I think they pretty much had to acknowledge the inevitable. Now, I can't fault the, their original call. But think about, you know, this is ancient history, but think about where we started the year. January 1st, the U.S. Uh, virus numbers were exploding. Vaccines were nowhere being rolled out. Um, most of the economy was closed. Um, we were looking at a, at a split government. And all of a sudden, June 6th, everything changed. And, you know, that if you... A lot of things happened that day, but the main thing that happened was that was the, the day after the Georgia Senate runoff, and we got um, the Democrats swept, and we're seeing the fruits of that right now. We're, we saw an aggressive um, fiscal package already. We're talking about another uh, $2 trillion in infrastructure spending, another one coming after that. So bottom line is the, the U.S. economic outlook is much, much better than it was when we started the year. Um, look, 2020 was clearly dollar negative. We, we did a terrible job with the pandemic. But really, we've seen 180 over the over Q1, and I think the dollar, equity markets, bond markets are all reflecting this this um, really uh, new outlook. Um, FX is is certainly part of that trade now. How are you thinking about the impacts on EM? Where we thought we were going to have big dollar weakness, we ended up not. We had some dollar strength. You have some rising yields here in the U.S. as you think about capital flows and relative attractiveness. How then does this change the outlook for emerging markets? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, it's, it's, it's I think that the drivers for EM are, in a, in a sense, uh, conflicting right now. So the global growth story, again, it's not just the U.S., uh, but, you know, China's doing well. Japan is starting to pick up. Um, the, the global growth outlook is, is very positive for EM. Um, you know, we're seeing strong exports out of Taiwan, Korea, high commodity prices. So that's all great, you know, well and good for EM. Um, but uh, for, in terms of currency, the strong dollar definitely, you know, throws a monkey wrench into it. You know, it's it's there are times when uh, the dollar can diverge against the majors and against EM, but right now it seems to be sort of you know full on dollar strength. Um, and that's not to say that's bad for for EM. Uh, you know, some weaker currency um, exchange rates is actually not bad for EM. I think many of the policymakers in, in emerging markets were, were concerned about uh, the weak dollar, strong local currencies, and I think they're sort of getting almost getting in a sweet spot. So I would say negative on EM currencies but positive on EM equities and EM growth. All right, Wynn, how about, you know, you, we talk about dollar strength. Where do you see opportunities in some G10 currencies here? Where are, some, where are you guys doing some work? Sure. So um, I think the dollar will, will, will really do best against sort of the, the, big, the big three. That would be uh, sterling, euro, yen. And you know, we've seen that in the uh, sort of the uh, you know, year-to-date performance. But where I see some outperformance within the majors is the um, – dollar block and scandies and it goes back to what i just said about em and, and the, the similar thing could hold for the for sort of these growth sensitive major currencies you know obviously can, the canadian dollar um naki uh, are oil related very positive there um you know uh, swedish krona um aussie kiwi you know kind of keyed into chinese and global growth so those currencies can outperform but again it's gonna be very hard to sort of um you know i think really gain against when the dollar is just on a, such a tear. Um, you know, I think, you know, the Q2 outlook uh, is really strong for growth right now. We were talking about 7%. I think it's consensus. 
carrying over to seven percent in Q3. I mean, that's, that's when the rest of you know when most of Europe is struggling. That you know that's sort of the other part of the equation. You know, France just went back into lockdown. Mm-hmm. Germany, Italy are extended their you know the limited lockdown. So you know the European outlook, um, you know X X UK is really quite poor right now. And so you know I think that you know, we can really see this outperformance against the euro uh, and to a lesser extent uh, the yen. Sterling, but uh, but you know the growth sensitive majors kind of holding up okay. Quickly here, the yen hedge funds boosting their short yen bets to the highest in two years. Is this a traditional and still safe haven, or is there something else going on? Well, no, I think um, really uh, we're kind of unwinding that safe haven, right? So the the shorts are at record high. So I think people are, are still, you know, I think we're seeing similar price action in the Swissy as well. We're moving out of the safe havens and more into the sort of, you know, growth, um, you know, cyclical type currencies. Um, so, you know, I think this yen, uh, dollar yen rise, yen weakness can continue. Uh, we've got a March 2020 high around 11, 111.70. And if you want to go even further out, we're looking at a 2018 high around 114.55. But, you know, let's take things one step at a time. Um, let's go quarter by quarter. But right now, to me, this, I think this, you know, today's weakness not, notwithstanding, I think it's more of a technical move. I think the fundamental drivers remain dollar positive. I, I should just add one quick thing. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that the Fed funds futures are starting to move up their Fed tightening expectations. Uh, yep. A hike uh, in Q3 is about almost half priced in and almost fully priced in by end 2022, um, which is very much at odds with the dot plot saying steady rates to 2023. So that's at the margin also very, very dollar positive. So all these things are, you know, sort of falling into place of the dollar, really sort of reversal yep. of what we saw in 2020. So... Here we are, okay. you know, taking back your dollar short. Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts on the global currency market. He's global head currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. Let's talk about this reopening trade. We've got lots and lots of evidence that this economy here is reopened, but we're also seeing some bottlenecks in lo- supply chains, in logistics. Mm-hmm. Let's get a sense of kind of what's going on out there in corporate America. We could do that with Chris Stansberry, CFO of Arrow Electronics. They are based in... Uh, where are they? Centennial, Colorado. So they are dangerously close to some of the best skiing in the world. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Briefly, just describe Arrow Electronics for our listeners who may not be aware of it, and then give us a sense of kind of what you're seeing in your business. Yeah, great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Arrow is a uh, distributor of uh, semiconductor and electronic uh, component products around the world. We've got a really broad line card, so we represent a broad swath of uh, suppliers. And we help customers choose the right parts for their products. Uh, and that can include engineering uh, designs for uh, you know, semiconductor board assemblies and whatnot uh, that go into uh, finished products. So that can be everything from your toaster to your car. Um, and uh, as, as more and more electronic content goes into, into products, we, we do see a broad uh, view of the uh, overall economy. So what's mm-hmm. interesting about where we sit today is that as we went into 2019, if we wind the clock back a couple of years, uh, the market went into just a cyclical decline. And so people leaned out inventories. Uh, our customers leaned out inventories. Uh, that looked like it was about to recover at the beginning of uh, last year. And then the pandemic hit and inventories came down again. So where we find ourselves right now is in a situation where people are sitting on lean inventories and there's really high demand for those products. 
You know, it's interesting. I was going back and reviewing the transcript from your earnings call that was really just two months ago and a lot of questions, of course, about the chip shortage and how big the difference is between supply and demand. What has changed in the last two months? Has it gotten any better? Uh, no, I would say it's continuing to, to progress along those lines. Again, it's mm -hmm. it, we're, we're in uncharted territory here where the business does go through cycles, but uh, we're we're starting uh, this ramp up following a uh, a cyclical slowdown and a pandemic. So, I think the the biggest example that we see and we all hear about is on the automotive side, right? Uh, car dealers would love to have more cars on lots, um, and the automotive sector leaned out inventories as they went into the pandemic. Uh, you know, expecting things uh, to really soften, and and really what we saw happen was. Uh, you know, people spent less on the things that they just physically couldn't spend money on, you know, travel, leisure, restaurants, and they started to spend it on other areas, uh, you know, home improvement, electronics, uh, you know, for, for not just consumer products, but for the home. And car sales actually remained fairly strong. So we, we ended up in the latter part of uh, last year and into this year with just broad uh, demand across uh, all industrial categories, and, and that continues. So it, it's interesting, uh, Chris, I'm just looking at uh, your stock all-time high today, up about 2%, $114. Um, what's the market discounting in your stock price? Are you viewed as a reopening trade? Yeah, I think really we, um, we're looked at as first of all, we're, we're very strong from a counter-cyclical standpoint. The stock held up well through the pandemic because we generate a lot of cash in a downturn, right? We, uh, we have a lot of inventory and working capital that uh, we, uh, we reduce in those windows and it allows us to pay down debt and, and buy stock at good prices. And so uh, we've done that. But now uh, I think investors are really seeing the, uh, the earnings potential, the EBITDA growth from the business as the economies around the world recover and uh, and more and more consumption of semiconductor product uh, takes place. Um, you know, where we sit is interesting because the underlying product that we sell has a deflationary value to it, which mm. which is a headwind. Um, the tailwind is, is that, um, and, it, and more than offsets that is, is that there's more and more electronic consumption in everything that we consume and use. And, and certainly with uh, environmental pressures and whatnot, uh, you know, that will continue. So that's a that's a, a, a much bigger tailwind for us, and I think the market recognizes that. We only have about a minute left. Wanted to get your thoughts on some of the comments we heard from the president last week in the infrastructure plan. There's a lot of production of chips and that nationalism, right, bringing that back to the U.S. How does that impact you? You know, it's we... we um, distribute product all over the world we're buying it from uh from multiple geographic locations and shipping it to other geographic locations so i don't think it really changes what we do uh you know the reality is is that for the last you know five to ten years there's there's obviously been an increase in nationalistic tendencies around the world um you know i i, I think that has its challenges with trade but certainly from a a um you know what we do standpoint if there's more made here then we'll just be shipping more from here and less from other places so we're quite happy to shift as the market shifts we had to do that with tariffs we've had to do it with other things 
and uh, you know, being nimble is is part of uh, the value we bring our uh, suppliers and customers. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate chatting with you, getting uh, some update on your company and on some of these global supply chain issues, which you guys are right smack in the middle of. Chris Stansberry, CFO of Arrow Electronics. They are based uh, in any suburb of Denver, Colorado. One of the key pillars underneath the equity bull call has been the reopening trade, and we've certainly been getting some data points that support that, whether it's the airlines, whether it's the uh, gaming companies, or the uh, uh, some of the other leisure uh, businesses. And also, we got last Friday that very, very strong jobs report. So again, the reopening trade seems to be in play. Uh, is that enough to push this market higher? Let's check in with Phil Orlando Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. Phil, thanks so much for joining us once again. You've been uh, a, a consistently bullish call on this equity market. Are you still there? I am absolutely still there. Um, this, uh, I don't know if you read my market commentary on Friday. I, I was working Friday because the Bureau of Labor Statistics thought they'd release the jobs report on Friday. <laughs> That's right. Numbers were astounding. You know, aside from the 916,000 jobs added and the 156,000 revisions positive for January and February, getting under the hood exactly puts an exclamation mark on the point you just made. So you look at the the household survey adding 609,000 jobs, triple the prior month. Leisure and hospitality added 280,000 jobs. State and local education, schools are opening up now, added another 101,000 jobs. All of this is because the pace of vaccination is improving. We're now up to like, what, 2.7 million vaxes a day. Uh, And as a result, now schools are reopening, bars, restaurants, stores, and and these these lower-skilled, lower-wage workers who were forced to the sidelines because of these, you know, lockdowns are now flooding back into the labor market. And um, th- th- this one statistic is will blow your mind. If you have less than a high school diploma, um, your rate of unemployment in February was 10.1%. It improved in March from 10.1% to 8.2%, uh, roughly a two percentage point decrease in the rate of unemployment, that's telling us these people are coming back into the labor market, and that's good for the overall economy and for the financial markets. Phil, I'm typically on in the afternoons, and Romaine Bostic and I are having a huge debate. <laughs> Every day we fight it out. He does not believe in inflation. I firmly believe in inflation. We see the ISM services in March, now the highest on record. Prices paid the highest since 2008. When are inflationary problems going to be an issue, though, for the equity markets? Well, it, it's a question of nominal versus core. Romaine is, uh, you know, for those who are looking at inflation, if you're focused upon the nominal numbers, copper prices have quadrupled over, uh, you know, doubled over the last year. Lumber prices have quadrupled. Oil has doubled. Uh, Corn, wheat, uh, soybeans are up 70 or 80 percent. So all of those nominal prices are up sharply as the economy has recovered. But remember the core inflation, the consumer price index and the personal consumption expenditure index, they strip out the increases in the food and energy prices. So those numbers look relatively more muted. But something's going to happen over the next three months 
what the Federal Reserve refers to as a procedural base effect. Mm. You go back and look at the inflation in in this time last year, uh, you know, February, March, April, May, those numbers were negative. Well, we're going to roll those numbers off now progressively over the next three or four months. So it's going to look like core inflation is spiking. But basically all we're doing is lopping off a negative number and adding on a positive number. So core PCE, for example, we could see that number at 2.5%. Um, over the summer, which is exactly where the Fed wants to see it. The question is, is it going to keep going up to 3, 4, 5 percent? We think the answer is no. We, we think it's going to stay in sort of that 2, 2.5 percent neighborhood on a core level, even though the nominal numbers have moved up pretty strongly here. All right, Phil, given that inflation backdrop and your overall bullish uh, call, what are the sectors that are, you guys are doing the most work on right now? Well, we, we, we're sticking to our guns here that, that the cyclical trade is the one that's working. We, we, we took the, our overweight in technology back to neutral last August, and we felt that the catalyst was in place that uh, categories like financials and, and industrials and consumer discretionary and energy, that those categories were ready to catch a bid here because the economy was, was out of recession and was going was gonna to rebound very strongly. That that's, that's played out. But the valuation gap hasn't, uh, hasn't been fully closed. So, so domestic large cap value uh, is going to continue to do well. International, right. particularly emerging markets and international SMID and, and the small caps, those are the areas that I think are going to continue to do well. Okay. Hey, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist for Federated Hermes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.